WNCW is member-supported public radio from Western North Carolina featuring an eclectic music mix. You can find out more and listen online at WNCW.org. Support for this public radio podcast comes from Pabst Brewing, proud supporter of local artists nationwide and of the NPR Live in Concert series, online at pabstblueribbon.com. This is Volume Control, musician interviews from WNCW-FM in Spindale, North Carolina. I'm Kim Clark, and on this installment, our visitors to Studio B are Pete and Mara, the Kennedys. Your new CD is Songs of the Open Road, and it's I guess it's been out about nine months or so. You guys are s- such uh, esteemed songwriters, and yet here is a collection of covers. What was, what was the thinking behind this? It was one of those things we always wanted to record a bunch of covers. And, you know, we'll, we'll pepper our albums, one or two covers on, on earlier albums. But we thought if we ever waited till we hit a dry spell as writers, it would never happen. So we just we took the plunge. And we, the hardest part for us was trying to narrow it down to just, what is it, 14 songs. Because we could just, we, we record all the time. We've got, we've got just so many tapes at home of songs that we've recorded that have never come out just because we love to do it. We love singing and playing songs that other people wrote because that's that's how we got started you know i think that's how every songwriter gets started is learning songs that they love by other writers i think almost all songwriters are connoisseurs of fine songs mm-hmm. i mean uh, bob dylan definitely is supposedly he could do he could do 20 nights in a row of other people's songs and and that's how you learn it's like if you're a writer shakespeare and steinbeck and hemingway you know you would read all that stuff in in your own work would would kind of come out of that, you know, and I think it's the same way with songwriters. Yeah, I mean, not, nothing exists in a vacuum. Yeah, and you, you take the cool right. stuff that came before and build on that. Definitely. Uh, the the CD before this one, a half a million miles, also had a you know traveling theme. Mm-hmm. So is, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, traveling <laughs> evidently looms large for you guys. That's it's our, our life. life. <laughs> <laughs> how many how many uh, days a, a year are you on the road? Well, we we uh, measure it usually by miles. That's easier for us because it's been pretty consistent for the past fourteen years. We average two hundred miles a day. Around 50,000 miles a year. And when we recorded Half a Million Miles, when we wrote that song, that was our 10th anniversary. And it was actually half a million miles that we had driven to that point together. So that that's a real number. <laughs> and evidently you've made your peace with that with that lifestyle. Well, we love it. You know, yeah. we're married. And um, so when we go out on the road, we don't have any kids. We don't have any plants or goldfish or anything that'll die in our absence. And so we just, we love it. We, we just take our life with us. We write on the road. We record on the road. We uh, play great gigs. We also take side vacation, you know, little side trips and um, whatever. It's just, we're gypsies and we're very happy with that. I think it was trendy for a while for musicians to complain about the road and, and say how terrible it is. And the motels all look the same and stuff like that. I mean, we're kind of glad if the motel looks the same, because <laughs> if it doesn't, that's usually bad. It's a bad sign. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's a great life, really. We meet people every time we play a gig who say, God, I wish I, I wish I could just take off and, and, and you know, travel around and play guitar. And that's what we do. So we don't complain about that. It's freedom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Your first date was at Buddy Holly's grave. <laughs> it's true. Uh, yeah. yeah. Talk that's about okay. that. Well, I was living in Austin, Texas at the time and playing around locally, um, my own original stuff. And Pete breezed through town. A, a mutual friend of ours um, told both of us that we had to meet each other. And so Pete was playing in Nancy Griffith's band on the road at the time. And so I went to see him play a solo show at the Continental Club and I was amazed at his guitar playing. It was a really um, 
it was such a rainy night that Congress Avenue had literally turned into a stream. And I almost didn't go out, but I thought, ah, it's one of my rare nights off. So I went out and, and heard him and just was so happy that I did. Then I had a gig. Well, we, we sat down and just had the same chemistry we do right now. I mean, literally the first time we met. And we wrote a song almost immediately. And we just loved the whole blend, you know, the vocal blend and the way the guitars uh, groove together and stuff like that. And so it was like we had this great relationship and got in a great band at the same time. But we that really was cool in our thing. first 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> and so Pete had to leave town because he had to play the Telluride Festival with Nancy. So we really only got had about maybe 20, 24 hours to, to get to know each other. Um, and then Pete left town. And I called Maura from Telluride, and that's a thousand miles from Austin. So we both, we were on the phone and we both got Rand McNally Road Atlases out. And we decided to find the equidistant point, which turned out to be Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> and that was just like too synchronistic, you know? I mean, for a songwriter, nobody but a songwriter would ever just go to Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> but that's where, you know, Waylon Jennings is from and uh, Jimmy Dale Gilmore and Joe Ely. And Butch Hancock, and of course, uh, Buddy Holly is like the granddaddy of them all. And I, I, at that time especially, I was so, so much into Buddy Holly. I mean, I had every single record, doubles of them, picture discs, and um, you know, velvet hangings of Buddy Holly. I mean, I was like hugely <laughs> into Buddy, so it was it was perfect for me. So we each drove five hundred miles. I drove down from the Rockies, and uh, Maura drove across West Texas, and we met at Buddy Holly's grave in in uh, Lubbock in the public cemetery there. And then we just kind of hit the road together then, and here we are. Wow, you had no choice after that. I know, long, yeah. <laughs> what a long, strange trip it's been. <laughs> well, you just talked a little bit about working with Nancy Griffith. Also, you played with Mary Chapin Carpenter a little bit? Yeah. Right? In 1991, I played um, with uh, Chapin for a mm -hmm. whole summer. And um, the last gig I did with her was Austin City Limits with Nancy Griffith and the uh, Indigos. And um, Nancy's guitar player, Bird Burton, had just left the band. And just for the heck of it, I played with Nancy, too, without being asked. And uh, <laughs> I figured they would just throw me off the set if they didn't, <laughs> if they didn't like it. And at the end of the gig, they came up and said, uh, the manager said, Nancy wants you in the band if you're free. And since it was my last gig with Chapin, um, I did it. And so I ended up going, touring all around the U.S., um, uh, with Nancy for several years and doing that album, Other Voices, Other Rooms, mm -hmm. which was an amazing, amazing. It was like a master's degree in folk because of all the people who came in and, and, and performed with Nancy on the album. Well, Namora, what was your musical path before you and Pete got together? Well, I grew up in upstate New York. I went to school in Ithaca College and got a music degree there and got out of college and thought I would just go about my usual business, which was playing in bars on the weekends, which is what I had done all through college until I got my first student loan bill and I realized I had to, you know, get a real job. So <laughs> that was a shock. <laughs> wow. So um, I, I did a day job for about a year and a half and um, but was still playing in bands around Syracuse. And I, I knew this was just not the life for me. And, and I was a big fan of the show Austin City Limits. So I, I knew I had to go to Austin just to check out the scene. I had gotten off the plane. I was maybe in town for all of 30 minutes when I knew I had to live there. So I moved. I picked up everything and I moved. And my only goal was to only make my living playing music. And Austin had so many places you could play, but they didn't really pay you because... It was all supply and demand. There were way more musicians than there were 
venues, so everything was past the hat. And I averaged nine gigs a week in Austin, between happy hour gigs and nighttime gigs. But I always paid that student loan bill every week. And I was just right at the edge of, of that, of being able to do that. But I did that for four years. Most of my meals were happy hour buffets, you know. But I, I, it was the best. To me, that was real college. I really learned how to play music. I, I learned how to, I think, entertain and hold an audience. And, and I, I just loved that, that period down there in Austin. So that's what I was doing. And I was playing. I never toured with anybody until I met Pete and got to know Nancy through Pete. And uh, during that Other Voices, Other Rooms tour, Nancy had Iris Dement as the opening act. And Iris would come out and sing harmony with Nancy as well. But right around that time, Iris signed a big deal with Warner Brothers and went off on her own. And Nancy wanted another... She got used to that three female vocal harmony sound because she had Lee Satterfield in the band as well. So she asked me if I would be in the band. And of course, I mean, I was a huge Nancy Griffith fan too. And so I said, yeah, absolutely. So we went out on the road for two months in Europe touring for that Other Voices, Other Rooms album. And the night before we left, Nancy... Well, she didn't really ask us. She just informed us that we were going to be the opening act, the two of us. Wow. And we the, hadn't written any songs yet. <laughs> we only had, we just had that one. We had our one song. It was a ballad. So yeah, one uh, slight problem. So. A 20-minute ballad. I don't, I don't think that would cut it. So. But luckily, you know, we, our first gig was in um, Liverpool, England. And we toured for two months around England and Ireland especially. There was a lot of, um, a lot of inspiration everywhere. And we wrote all of the first songs on our first album while we were on that tour. You know, when I joined the Musicians Union, it was back in the um, mid-70s, and uh, I was two years old at the time. And uh, <laughs> I was one. <laughs> and I went to the Union Hall in, in Washington, D.C., and, um, uh, and I had to go downstairs to the basement and watch a slideshow on what the union does for you. And so I went down, and there was only two other people joining that day. There was an accordion player. And um, on my left side and on my right side was Emmy Lou Harris. She was joining the union on the same day. And um, and so I remember talking to her afterwards and I said, well, what's going on? Because she'd been playing around locally and she had done the Graham Parsons was had passed on by that time. But she was back in D.C. And she said, well, I'm going um, out west and, you know, I've got my fingers crossed because it looks like I might have a, a record deal. And then the next time I saw her was headlining somewhere at a huge uh, a venue. But I think about that uh, that day down in the basement of the Union Hall every time we play this song. It's written by Graham Parsons and Chris Hillman. We're on the radio now, obviously, and you guys are no strangers to that. Are you, are you still hosting that uh, radio show for Sirius? Yeah, yeah. We, mm-hmm. we're in our third year now, which is interesting because we initially signed a six-month contract and thought they would fire us, by the <laughs> but we're still there. It's, I don't know why. Why did you think they were going to fire you? Because we're not. I mean, we weren't DJs. You know, they hired us because they wanted our road stories and they wanted the musicians' perspective, and we thought they wouldn't really want that. But they do. They, you know, and and they've given us a lot of freedom. We we just, you know, talk about 
the music that we play from from more from a musician's perspective and from our us knowing some of these musicians and having played gigs with them and stuff and um and it's just our own little hangout whatever whatever we're into so it's not really um traditional radio and that's why i thought we'd be We'd be gone by now. <laughs> We're still there. It's Dharma Cafe, right? Yeah. And it's is it on the Disorder channel? Yeah, it's yeah. on the Disorder on, on a Sirius Satellite. Yeah. It's fun. It's totally eclectic, you know. I mean, we'll go from Mississippi John Hurd into Stravinsky, you know, and then back into Charles Mingus, and then that'll wind back into uh, well, last week we Joni played, Mitchell. Last week, week we played uh, Jack Kerouac singing. I didn't even know he ever did sing. He didn't. Well, <laughs> oh, I don't know. He, well, the fu- no, it's really entertaining though because he um, he he sings. Um, what song is that? That he ain't we got fun. Ain't we got fun? And he makes up all the words. <laughs> it's very uh, cynical and beautiful. Because <laughs> I think the only thing we have of his in our library here is of some things that were actually taken off of a Steve Allen show. You know, you see oh, yeah. Steve Allen. And We've mm-hmm. got the video reading of that. From, yeah. Reading from On the Road yeah. while Steve yeah, Allen cool. plays the piano. That's yeah. that's a cool little clip. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Well, there's something else you guys are into, too, that I found really interesting called The Strangelings. Oh, That's yeah. our new band. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. Well, um, we've got these friends, Chris and Meredith Thompson. They're identical twins. Beautiful blonde hair, incredible musicians. I mean, uncanny the way they connect on a musical level in the same way that you would imagine the Leuven brothers or the Everly brothers connect are connected, um, kind of an ESP thing. And one of them had a baby and was sort of threatening to not play anymore. And, and Chris really wanted to keep going. So we thought, well, how are we, we need to help these because they're our friends. Let's start a band with Chris. And uh, that way, you know, Meredith will go off and have her family, and, and Chris will, will still be working. Well, Meredith really wanted to be in the band, too. So <laughs> it's both of them and both of us. She's actually having another baby, like, any minute now. So we're going to have some rotating people. But it's a, uh, it's a band where all the—first of all, I'll give you the instrumentation. Two electric sitars. Pete and I both play electric sitars. And Meredith plays drums, uh, percussion, and flute. Chris plays acoustic guitar, and we all sing. And all the songs are sort of mythologically based. It's sort of a cross between a jam band and Fairport Convention. Well, Fairport Convention was a jam band. Kind of. In their own way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so, yeah. And, and so far, the, the sets of music that we've performed have been complete suites with no pause in between songs and, and musical interludes linking each song. So it's uh, it's... It's more like watching a movie than than seeing a live show where there's clapping and you know pauses mm-hmm. in between things in disjoint, disjointed songs. This is all constructed as one sort of tone poem almost. Yeah, it's fun. It's like a funky version of British folk rock, which very, is kind of neat. Very, very interesting. Is there anything out there that if, if it's tweaks somebody's interest right now, can they go and hear this? Or? Yeah, um, it, you can go to uh, YouTube. We put the first 10 minutes of one of our shows up on YouTube. And also there's a MySpace page, myspace.com uh, slash thestrangelings. And we haven't recorded an album yet, but we did record our first show on DVD. And that just came out. So you can, you can see it. The, the, my, the YouTube video is a snippet of that. You can sort of check it out. The Kennedys are here this morning into all different kinds of stuff, as you can hear. You want to do another tune? Sure. Yeah. Speaking of Jack Kerouac, we wrote, we decided we needed a train song, right? Everybody needs a train Everybody's song. Everybody's got to have a train got song. Got to have one. <laughs> so we wrote one about Jack, uh, Jack Kerouac. 
thinking there aren't really enough bluegrass songs about Jack Kerouac. But he did his share of hopping freight trains. He did, yeah. In chapter one of the Dharma Bums, which is a really cool book, he hops on a freight train called the Midnight Ghost. One, two, three. I was rolling in on the California coast We caught a fast freight called the Midnight Ghost We huddled in our blanket sharing coffee and a tin And thought about New York as the cold crept in Working on our karma, take it as it comes Spinning out the dharma in the cold gray sun All right. The Kennedys live in Studio B doing one from Half a Million Miles. That was my favorite tune on that record. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. got a Bill Monroe ending. <laughs> Thank you for doing that one. Now, the new CD is Songs of the Open Road, a collection of covers. And, and Pete, I read that one of the outstanding tracks on here, Eight Miles High, you consider that a really formative tune for you personally. What does that tune mean to you? Well, we talked to McGuinn about it, and he said that they had been on tour, the birds, uh, you know, Winnebago type RV or something and they had an eight track player and they only had so many tapes with them. So he said they had uh, John Coltrane's uh, Africa Brass, uh, a Ravi Shankar uh, Raga album, uh, the Zombies doing She's Not There and Segovia doing uh, Leyenda, that piece that goes... So he said those those four or five, whatever it was, tapes kind of got drilled into his mind during this tour. And when they got back, um, Gene Clark had come up with this idea for kind of a folky modal um, song. But when McGuinn started playing it, all those things came out. So it's a combination of Segovia, classical, Ravi Shankar, world music, I guess you could call that, and um, uh, the, uh, the zombies, rock, pop music. And um, uh, the Coltrane modal jazz. And that all came out in that one song. And it really, I think, would have set a whole new direction for pop music if it hadn't gotten, I'm sure you know the story about how one of the radio magazines uh, came out with this article about how it was uh, all about drugs and stuff. Oh, and yeah. you shouldn't play that song. And so that, that, that ended the bird's career on the, on the radio. But uh, what if that had become a hit? You know, it came out around the same time as Rain and Paperback Rider. You know, I mean, the whole thing could have gone off in this really cool direction of uh, eclectic. Well, what the Grateful Dead did, really, mm -hmm. include every possible kind of American music in, in your vision. And uh, I think McGuinn did that with that one song, too. So we decided what a great template for a, a current band. So that was kind of our formative song. But, but using all the music that's available now. I mean, world music now is a lot broader the, the music that's available to us now is a lot broader of a scope than it was to McGuinn. I mean, he had, it was rare to have a Ravi Shankar album. I heard that David Crosby had uh, the Bulgarian Women's Choir and, and a Ravi Shankar album, you know, and that's about all there was. But, you know. We still have an eight track, but we have more than four tapes now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, talking about that tune, it's not, it's only been about two years ago, um, Chris Hillman did a solo record and put that on there with uh, basically bluegrass right. instrumentation. And it with Herb Pedersen, I think. Yeah, and yeah. It, it totally works. Yeah. yeah, it really is kind of a folk song if you if you strip it down and just play it acoustically without the wild um, Rickenbacker stuff in it. So it's a really, it's a cool song that kind of can go anywhere. You know, it doesn't lock you in. And uh, 
you know, you could you could work off of the energy of that song for well, we have for fifteen years right now, kind of going <laughs> off in the different directions where where that one song points. Well, you know, one of the the lamest interview questions that you can ask is, is uh, and I'm going to ask it, of course. Is, no, it's like, what are you listening to in the van? And now the update is, what's in your iPod? And uh-huh. I and I read and I read somewhere on your, I think it was on your website, just a few things, uh, both very really eclectic iPods, but Mara. Petula Clark. I love Petula <laughs> Clark. I love her. I, now I love you because I love Petula <laughs> Clark. And the Flash Cubes. They played at our wedding. Are You're yeah. kidding. No, they're friends of ours. Yeah. See, I didn't even know that they were still active. I was just, yeah. you know, Christy girls and oh, stuck Chris, in my house. Christy like, girl, I want you to be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I used to go out and hear them. And, uh, that, when I was growing up in Syracuse, I th- thought it was normal to, if you were a musician, to be in a band and write your own songs, because that's what all the Syracuse musicians did. And the Flash Cubes were the main ones on the scene. And I just, uh, Gary and Artie uh, especially, they were like Syracuse's, you know, Lennon and McCartney. And they were the, the core of, of the Flash Cubes. And they're still doing it. Yeah, they played at our wedding. Yeah. Isn't that something? <laughs> I didn't realize that they were still out there until just uh, I got on a sidetrack getting ready for this interview, went to their website. And I thought, my gosh, they're still doing it. You know, they, they did a show in Tokyo for the first time a couple years ago and recorded it live in Tokyo. You'll, you should check that out. That's pretty wild. All right. Yeah. Well, now, Pete, on your iPod, I found uh, with interest that uh, Inyo Morricone. Oh, yeah. You're into the spaghetti western oh, stuff. Yeah. 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 But he was so, so much more than that. He's, he's a real amazing composer. Just uh, the, the soundtrack to the mission, that's one of our favorites. The, the, he, He's not just, you know, (laughs) he's so much more than that. (laughs) I think as you want, you know, I I think singer-songwriters in general don't sit around all day listening to other singer-songwriters. If they did, I mean, we would all develop this genre where we all sound just like each other, you know, and how boring would that be? So I think most of us spend our time trying to stretch our musical minds as far as we can. Because then that will inform, you know, if you listen to the Rite of Spring every day for eight weeks and then you write a song, it might not sound like Stravinsky, but it's going to be affected by that, definitely. You know, sure. Grace Slick said that she listened to um, Sketches of Spain, the Miles Davis thing, for 24 hours straight and then wrote uh, White Rabbit. <laughs> so, you know, she probably wouldn't have written a Phrygian mode Spanish song except for the Miles Davis uh, listening session there. That's the Kennedys, Pete and Mara, who have been playing live for us this morning in Studio B. Y'all, this has been a real treat. Thank you so much for coming by. Thank Can we you. do this every week? S- so this much. is really fun. Yes. Here in our Studio B engineer, Dennis Jones, there at the end, emphatically saying, yes, the Kennedys can come back every week. I hope you'll come back and listen to another installment of Volume Control next month right here. You can find out more about WNCW and contribute to this station at WNCW.org. Support for NPR Podcasts comes from Acura, featuring the all-new turbocharged Acura RDX with available real-time traffic alerts. More at Acura.com slash RDX.